might start off. My name is Anna. And a fun fact is that I just won my hockey finals and I got a cute gold medal. It's not actually gold. It's not actually gold, but it's <laughs> colored gold. So it's, you know, we've got a little bit of an achievement going. So what about you guys? Uh, I'm Elsa. I'm from Switzerland. And a fun fact about me is that I know how to play like about four instruments. Yeah. And music is very important to me. So wow. there's that. <laughs> I mean, I don't have a fun fact as cool as you guys, but my name is Maliha. <laughs> Um, I'm from Germany, but lived in Switzerland for a long time. So I'm still in the Swiss EYP <laughs> um, organization. And I have a really uncool fun fact that I can move my ears without touching them. Ooh! <laughs> well, there you go. That's a party trick. <laughs> okay, so I'm first going to go to Elsa who is representing Cult One, the Committee on Culture and Education. And I just wanted to read out a little bit of an excerpt from the topic overview, because um, I thought like it was really, really important to emphasize. It goes, young people's immediate surroundings will affect the kind of education they receive and the opportunities available to them. And the question that I read was, can that still be a fact in the age of the 21st century? So what's your opinion? Do you think that geography still plays a role in education and the type of social life that you would receive? Sadly, it does, which is, yeah, seeing as, as we're in the 21st century, it should probably change, of course, but sadly, it does. We still have 3.7 more young people that are unemployed or not in education in rural areas than in cities. And the education rates in, in urban areas are way higher than in rural areas, which is very sad and dramatic, not to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It definitely still plays a role. Yeah. You see, there's also like some, I think, deficiencies in the infrastructure in rural areas that I've noticed. And like, obviously, there's some people that would say like, oh, just maybe build more schools. And um, do you think that would alleviate the problem or like would any issues arise in just doing that? I mean, it sounds like a nice idea. Just build more schools and we'll have it figured, like always figured out. Right. But I mean, schools aren't the biggest problem. It's more so the lack of infrastructure, which, of course, just by building new schools, it doesn't mean that we're going to have more technology over there or like better infrastructure overall. And also we just don't have enough teachers in rural areas, which, yeah, of course, you can build the buildings. But if you don't have the people to fill them, then it doesn't help anything. Then you'll just have some empty schools standing around, taking away space from maybe other things that are also important or also taking away money from other that would be needed for other things yeah I think the shortage of teachers is like a really quite a bad like a really sad problem I think that we've had to face obviously the migration in urban areas has like increased and like the level of teachers has decreased in rural areas so like that moves on to my question and what do you think makes urban areas more attractive for teachers? On one side, of course, that there's better infrastructure, as I already said, there's better teaching options, modern teaching options, like there's more technology around. There's most in most cases, the schools have more to work with or the access to like maybe libraries is better, etc. But also, of course, it's cities. So you have all the advantages of urban areas. You have better social 
you have the possibility for better social lives, for other opportunities. You meet people easier and like all probably is like the same reason as why many people go to urban areas in the, in the first place, not only teachers. And also you have just in general more students in the, in the cities, which also makes your, your chances of getting a job there actually higher. Yeah, I think you answered my question. Like the lack of rural teachers is quite a big problem, you know. Um, and also, I think internet. I think internet has a big play in education at the moment, especially during COVID. I think I've noticed, especially for me, even though I actually accommodate in an urban area, I know those around Ireland, rural Ireland, have had to go by digital means so like do you think there's a big breakthrough for rural areas like how will digital infrastructure help or how do you think it could happen i mean it could be a big breakthrough i mean you could suddenly have the access to more teaching to a more diverse um education like more diverse courses etc but uh sadly it is not the breakthrough it could be just because there is a lack of like I'm repeating myself here, but like there's not enough technology or there's also not like the internet connections in rural areas are just not as good as in urban areas. The people maybe don't have the access to the same technological means as people in the urban areas, etc. So instead of it being like the big breakthrough to digital teaching, it has just shown like where it just has shown the problems in a greater meaning and during the COVID times. Because the uh, uh, students in rural areas has been have been cut off way more from education and people in urban areas, so it actually did the opposite thing, and it was just an additional disadvantage to rural to, to students in rural areas, which is really sad. Because if, as I said, if, if there were the technological means, it could have been this big breakthrough for with rural student like rural students not needing to move to for example, the city to go to university or something, but being able to do it from home, but it's not. So. Yeah. Exactly. Like it can result in like more difficulties than actually helping. I get you. Um, I also actually have a little story. Um, my mother grew up in really small rural Ireland um, and she went to a primary school, which was usually aged five to 12, 13. And there was only 30 pupils in the whole school and probably around like three teachers teaching them. And so she had to face the problem of growing up in rural areas and the infrastructure kind of being an issue. Um, But still to this day, the school is open and nothing has changed. Nothing has kind of been modified. Do you think that rural areas are just forgotten about? You might say that, although I would probably use the word overlooked rather than forgotten because of course people know that there's rural areas and schools and sorts but because there's just less people there there's more and more less young people there because people are migrating to cities especially young people there's also less the the birth rates are dropping so there's essentially less young people actually uh, in the world now so it's easier to overlook rural areas and to just not prioritize them and give give the means in education to urban cities where there's actually more more children and more young people so might seem logical to give more money to the urban area or like to like support the urban areas better than the rural areas so as i said i would say overlooked rather than forgotten 
Yeah. Well, thank you. Thanks for your answers. I think those really helped me kind of keep informed on like the actual topic at hand and the issue and maybe ways to solve it. So thank you, Alessa, for your perfect answers. <laughs> so I have Amalia and you are going to introduce the Committee on Environment, Public Health and Food Safety. So this topic overview includes a little food of thought question, and it was, how should the EU work to mitigate the impacts of an ever-aging population? I'm assuming that the topic is broadly based on how the current aging population is impacting society and what could be done differently to ensure successful outcomes. Am I correct in saying this? Yeah, you are correct. Um, I think at this point, it's kind of hard to imagine what exactly you mean, what exactly is it impacting, and you know, what are the worries with an aging population? Because, I mean, you hear about it all the time, you know that it probably is something to do with pensions, but there's not a lot of other things you can imagine to it. And actually, I mean, it's a really complicated problem because it's not only pensions. I mean, pensions is like a big thing, of course, but it's also healthcare. It's like, it's politics even. It's just how the society is kind of based. If there's a market for older people, I mean, there's going to be a larger market for older people in a lot of things and less for younger people. I mean, you have a budget and you need to know how to allocate that. So you might kind of concentrate on the larger population, which if it's an aging population is like average higher. And if you at the same time actually want to invest in younger people, it might be a problem. I mean, who's to say in the end? Um, it's not it's not an easy thing to like really just compress. And there's like a lot of things going on. So you never know in which direction it's going to go. But generally, there's like so much to it that it's um, sometimes hard to pinpoint the exact yeah. path. It touches all bases of society. Like, yeah. yeah. So then I think I'm going to kick it off with like a big main question. In your opinion, why do you think the population is actually getting older? Or do you have any facts or statistics about it? Yeah, there is a statistic. So the main theory why this is happening is because there's low birth rates and that people live longer. I mean, in Middle Ages, of course, you know, people died pretty early compared to now. And with new technology and like more um, innovations in the medical field, people are living longer and longer. I mean, how many diseases do we have today which can be cured, which couldn't have been cured like a few years back? Yeah. And yeah, I think... So this is not based on a statistic, <laughs> not in the tier at least, but there's also a thing where more in Western country, you often have the problem that the fertility rates are pretty low compared to other places. I mean, there, there might be a lot of reasons for that, but we see it happening in Europe and also in the USA, for example. Yeah, it just causes there to not be enough young people to balance it out. And so you had this graph, which the biggest portion of the graph was like for like 2030s, maybe people in their 20s or 30s. Yeah. And that just changed. And now it's like a mushroom shape. And you see the highest population is more getting older. The average is getting older. And there's not really enough young people to balance out this mushroom statistic. Yeah, like I read about young people and I think it was ages zero to 29 years old and it accounted for less than one third of EU's population. Yes, exactly. Like, it's scary how like unbalanced it, it's gone. So like, do you think that encouraging birth rates is actually the best solution to take? I mean, one might 
actually think that, but I think it's really hard to say that because how, I mean, how would you legislate it? How would you tell people to like, give more birth? It's, it kind of, if you really think about it and if you would do it in politics, it would get really sexist really fast. Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of what we're doing is like actually wanting more support for women after they have given birth to go to work again. I mean, you see more fathers going, taking their vacation so that the mothers can go to work. And so what you actually want to do is support women to not only give birth, but to only have like a successful life, a job. And if you would (laughs) encourage more birth and actually women don't want those births, then that might be a problem, you know, like politically that might go into a wrong direction. Yeah, but that follows on, I think, to my next question, which is if you could explain a little bit about age dependency ratios and like how they could have an impact or like, in your opinion, what, how would you define them? Okay, so age dependency dependency ratios are pretty much, um, you have like a percentage of the population who is not going to be able to work. So really young people, like until the ages of 15, should not work, of course. And then later you have the people in their pensions, they're also not going to work. So these are the people that economically speaking aren't like contributing to the workforce, not producing money, not doing labor. And so those people obviously have to be covered by other people. So of course, in young people, you usually have parents who who are covering you. But in the end, the government still spends on you for like schooling. So that's you have this dependency. You are depending on other people to finance your life. And it's the other way around for pensions. You've worked your whole life, but then you go into pension. So you're actually depending on other people to pay your pension now. So you're depending on the current workforce to finance your living after you yeah. have gone into pension. And so that's a dependency, um, actually, between these ages. And the ratio would have been that usually this dependency would have been about the same percentage wise. But since we have an aging population, you kind of see, and it is also forecasted to really increase the old age dependency ratio, which, well, thinking about it, it might not actually be a problem, but also it might be a problem because like I said, you might want to actually invest into the youth and, you know, maybe old age dependency ratios is more expensive maybe i mean it's not really clear you can't really like state it as a fact but there's a lot of things going into which might produce a problem if the old age dependency ratio goes way higher way higher than the young age dependency ratio so yeah well thank you i think i can conclude with that with one last question do you think stuff like self-employment would benefit if dependency is such a large issue yeah actually we have seen that it does help as like people actually go into pension later in life if they are self-employed that is uh, a statistic we have the only problem i see here is for what reason they go into pension later in life because it doesn't always mean a good thing like economically speaking yeah it's good if they go going to their pensions later in life because it means that they're not contributing to the people we have to currently finance. So there's 
less of a burden on the working force because more people are still in the working force, of course. But you also have to think about why this is happening. So is it happening because they wouldn't have enough pension money? Are they forced to actually stay in the working force even though they're not capable at their age? It's really a tough thing to say. But I think um, self-employment also gives you more flexibility. So even for older people, it might be better because if they have mobility issues, they might still be able to work more comfortably. So there's still like positive aspects of it. Oh, I see. So we can still take out a positive. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thanks for your answers. Thank you. Thank you. Cult two. So this topic is, I think, especially important topic because it relates super close to children and also teenagers could have grown up in similar backgrounds that were at risk of like poverty or social exclusion. So child poverty is still very prominent in Europe, as I've read um, in the topic overview. So do you have or could you give us any statistics regarding the number of children that suffer from poverty? Leon. Yes, uh, I'm happy to do so. Um, So the most surprisingly, unfortunately, statistic that I have is the one that you've probably read as well, that 24% of children in the EU are actually at risk of poverty. But our topic is not only about poverty and social exclusion, but on education as well. One thing to keep in mind is that the proportion of students that are in education poverty, that means that they are basically not not, um, basically proficient um, in their education system, that this actually increased between 2000 and 2015. And not only that, also only 1% of students from the lowest socioeconomic levels reached the top level of performance in schools. So this means that there's not only education poverty, but also a lot of inequality. So, yeah, there's, I think, a lot more going on than just poverty and like the education gap. Like so many other things can come into play just because of it. So there's also some instances where education can save children from that are suffering from poverty, such as like free school meals or like breakfast clubs. So I was wondering if education can actually be used as an intervention mechanism or something similar that I mentioned. So like the question is, why do you think education is key to tackling child poverty? There are many arguments why education is an intervention mechanism because it breaks the so-called cycle of poverty. And the cycle of poverty is that when a child lives in poverty, not all basic needs are met. And of course, the basic needs need to be met when they have to go to school and need to perform and use their brains. So this leads to really low school performance when we don't tackle this inequality. Low performance in education will then seep through until their later life. And on the one hand, this is academically, but on the other hand, also socially, when the the, the students are not performing well in school, then they are at risk of social exclusion. Yeah, that can be a big problem. Also, when I think about school, I often tend to forget about preschool education. And I know personally, like education is just known maybe as primary or secondary school and then maybe third level education. But like, I think me personally, for sure, I forget to think about preschool. How important is it for children to have access to some sort of like kindergarten education? Yeah, I think it's understandable that you tend to forget it um, since 
normally it's not really labeled education. I think we we tend to think of it as some kind of uh, just having fun as a kid um, and yeah, being around other kids. But it's actually shown that, especially in these young ages, it's really important to have uh, a good education system for young children because the the space where the kids are in is um, important for the um, social cognitive development. <laughs> so this means that when there is a lot of inequality in this time, um, the effects of this inequality are even higher. So it's really important to overcome inequality in this time. Yeah. And not only that, but like the possibility that poverty can seep into tertiary education is like, or even seep into adulthood after finishing school. Um, I think it could really disrupt daily life. So I think I'm going to pass this question on to Eleni. How do you think you can go beyond this and allow children in poverty to not have to face the same problems when they step out into adulthood or out of education? Again, relating to the topic of education and in order to break the poverty cycle that Leon has mentioned previously, it is essential that children do receive assistance by the EU in order to continue with higher education after secondary education, which is mandatory in all member states for a certain amount of years, and through different schemes that can allow them to more easily gain skills and make them more occupationally mobile in their future. Moreover, just like we've mentioned so many times during this podcast, it is essential that children are educated and well aware of how they can find this employability opportunities in the future, since that's um, some, an issue that they definitely face when it comes to unemployment. And moreover, I just wanted to say that childhood poverty can cause significant psychological effects to children. It is proven that it does. Uh, therefore, it is important that the EU also is able to assist with that and is able to help secondary schools, primary schools and free schools in providing children with psychological assistance for free and accessible to all groups. Thank you. That's so true. I've also actually seen in movies like things such as like scholarships and like school expenses being covered for certain students who maybe have achieved really well academically. But I don't know if there's anything in place regarding things without the burden of having to achieve really high marks for students' grades. As in, my question is like, is there anything else apart from scholarships just for students that do well in school? Um, so the main solution measure please that the EU has um, up to this point in my opinion is definitely mandatory education. It is mandatory under the law of all EU member states um, that children usually uh, till the age of 15 to 16 do attend school and the EU member states mostly are responsible for following up with whether children are actually enrolled with school and do fulfill the usually 10 to 11 years on average of mandatory education. Um, therefore, that's usually full-time compulsory, or it can also be different training schemes in combination. So there is a dual system which operates quite famously in Germany, where children can attend compulsory education as well as training programs as simultaneously. Therefore, there are quite a few solutions that this basically forces, in a way, children to follow up with their education and ensure that children do receive it. 
even if parents or guardians are a bit more reluctant or unable to offer education themselves since it is free. Leon, do you think you have anything else to add? Yeah, I think I would like to highlight that your question pointed out a really interesting point about our topic in general, because the financial support for students is often connected to the question of deservingness, who deserves what and because of what. And um, this is basically a conflict between equity and equality. And like we explained before, when we measure a student's performance, just based on their grades, it might not be considered fair when you have understanding of equity. Yeah. Because they are just not in the same starting point in the race for good grades. So this conflict is always something that um, politics has, has to deal with. I understand. So it's, it's, a, it's a constant battle. It's, it's an ongoing debate, I'm assuming. Yeah. I mean, it's an, it's an, it's an ethical conflict even. Yeah. Wow. Well, <laughs> I have one last question. And um, I think this would probably be more of your own opinion. Whose responsibility would you say is it to ensure that children's education and poverty are actually looked after? Um, the biggest responsibility definitely falls on the shoulders of member states, since the EU itself um, cannot intervene in any way or impose any specific requirements on how education should be facilitated. However, there is an EU framework that member states are obliged to follow. Um, so basically, schools from country to country operate quite differently, um, both with how syllabus is delivered, how many hours children are required to stay in school, regulations like that. Therefore, I would definitely see that member states, since they do manage their national education systems, are the most responsible with facilitating everything that is needed to ensure that these children do receive quality education. And other more secondary actors, I would definitely say, are the Director General for Education and Culture. Since they're the more executive branch of the EU responsible for this issue, they're responsible for policy and ensuring that there is cooperation between countries on the writing of this policy. And one more organization that I would definitely say is responsible is the European Social Network. This ties into a bit more the poverty side of our topic instead of education necessarily. But it is quite a big organization that were authorities from 150 authorities at local, regional and national level as well as international one cooperate in order to ensure that social services are run properly and are able to support disadvantaged children in any way possible as well as and they help in several ways as well as transitioning from the care system into adulthood helping with employment um, supporting vulnerable youth in education, things like that. Uh, so like a whole lot, like, wow. well, I think that concludes the end of this episode. I'd like to thank both of you. I forgot to give an introduction. If you guys want to give a little fun fact about yourselves. Okay, I will, I will start. I've probably said this too often already in European sessions, but um, I've never eaten a burger at McDonald's. Never, <laughs> never. Never. Well, I um, I commemorate you on that one. And my biggest fun fact I would say is definitely that I most um, likely graduate high school at the age of nineteen because my birthday is end of June, 
Uh, therefore, it really depends on when my school decides to set my graduation date. Hopefully I'll be 18, but big possibility 19. <laughs>